you to Nancy and her crew for all that they did. Awesome, awesome lunch. Thank you so much. And then one more thank you. Pastor Pahachek. Bro, thank you so much for putting this day together for all of us and releasing so many of us. All right. Now, you need to sympathize with me for being the speaker after lunch, especially when we can see the sun shining. We're all trying to get out there. So could we all stand to our feet, try to shake things off a little? I'm going to read two scriptures, and we're, we're going we're gonna to do this. I am so excited about this message. So just to set up the context, we are at the Last Supper. This is Jesus with his, his, his leadership team. And this is what he says, John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be made full. Everything I've said is so that you will be filled with my joy. And then, same meal, verse 24 of chapter 16. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. For this elusive thing called joy. This very important equipment that you gave for your leaders, which is joy. Lord, would you speak to us today? Lord, where joy has been lost, I pray that it would be restored. Where joy has only been a doctrine, I pray that there would be an experience, even today, of your joy. Lord, fill this place. You're the only real teacher. Holy Spirit, please come and speak. Hide me behind the cross, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So here's where this message came from. We were... uh, We were on a Tuesday night prayer meeting, and Nathan was up here, and it was like one of the very first songs in worship. And some of you will remember the song, Got that joy down in my heart, down in my heart, down in my heart. And then there's this part that goes like this. You've never known me till you've known me filled with joy. You've never known me till you've known me filled with joy. And we're, he's singing that. And I'm st- standing over there just singing along. And the Lord speaks to me. And it's so strong. I don't usually do this. I come up. Nathan, poor Nathan's got his eyes closed. You've never known me. And I just put a hand on him. And he's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, I need to say something right now. And here was the word. The word for many believers is, I've never known me until I've known me filled with joy. That the best version of yourself is you filled with joy. But for many There is no context for that version of yourself. Joy is an awkward thing Christians talk about. Joy is a a doctrine of the church of what we're supposed to have or maybe what we will have someday in heaven, but it is so little, such a small part of our actual experience. 
that we make our identity without it. And we just end up with this version of ourselves might still have a lot of integrity and it might have a lot of Bible in it and it might have some peace in it, but joy oftentimes is not part of our foundational identity. And the Lord wants to speak today. He wants to speak to every one of his leaders. I have a version of you where you are filled with joy. There is a version of you in my heart that is you filled with joy, not just in heaven one day, but, but down here. These guys are going to need to be filled with joy. They are, they are going to face the battle, and, and, and Jesus is leaving, and they are going to be leading the church. It's going to be very, very difficult. And Jesus said, this is, this is not a bonus. This is part of your equipment. I want you filled with joy. And so uh, that's where this came from. Joy-filled leaders. Point one, why God wants joy-filled leaders. First, he wants you to have a reward for your service. 1 Corinthians 9, 17. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. This is, this is kind of interesting. The sign of grace is want to. The sign of law is have to. When it's just me doing what I'm supposed to be doing and it's just a have to, that's, that's just the performance identity and there's a lot of reasons why people just do what they're supposed to do. But Paul says to get a reward, I have to do this voluntarily. Let, let, me, help, let me help you with this. Here's the work God will reward. It is not just work that you do for him. It it has to be not just for him. It has to be with him. That God, he could have done it anyway. He could have set this up anyway. But he has chosen that the way his kingdom is going to advance is not by human might or human power, but by his Holy Spirit. And so it's not enough to do it for him. You need to do it with him. The passage there in 1 Peter about, about how the gifts work. Let whoever speaks, let him speak the very words of God. Not words about God, but words from God. The very words God speaking. Those words that are, are, are received in intimacy with him. Those who serve, let them serve with God's strength. Let, let them serve not just for God, but with God. God wants all of us not just to make it to heaven, but to receive these eternal rewards. And there is a link to joy and, and pr- the privilege it is to serve God that when you lose that, you're, you, you get in a, in a bad place, not just down here, but you're going to end up losing what rewards could have been. Secondly, of course, Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is our strength. (laughs) If you don't have joy in your church, you're going to have a weak church. You don't have joy in your life, you're going to be a weak Christian. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The secret to not burning out is joy. Get joy in your life. Watch over your joy. Find out how to infuse joy in your life. Here's the third reason why God wants joy-filled leaders. Joy is what God will reproduce. Old Testament, David said, Restore to me the joy. This is Psalm 51, 12 and 13. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. This will be reproduced. Joy is the thing everybody is looking for. And it is what God will use as a drawing card, and he will reproduce it. The church in uh, Ephesus in Revelation 2, you read about this church, and, it, and you're just like, oh, my, I wish we could be a church like that. They, it, it, Jesus starts out by saying, you guys are working very hard. You, are, you haven't grown weary. You're, you're a persevering church. You, uh, you are a correct church doctrinally. You've stood against false doctrines with me. I appreciate that. And then he says, 
uh, you only lack one thing. Um, you've, you've left your first love. Remember where you've fallen and do, do the deeds you did at first. Now, they're already working really hard, so it's not doing more deeds. He's saying, I want you to do the deeds the way you used to do them. Remember, this used to be a joy. This used to be exciting. This used to be an adventure, and all of that's gone. Remember those days when you didn't even notice your own sacrifice because you were so filled with joy? I want that back. And if you don't get it back, he says, I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. I'm actually going to remove your influence as a church because I don't want that reproduced. I, I want my church not just to be working, not just to be having right doctrine. I want them to be filled with my joy. I want them to be excited about me. I want them to be excited about their own participation in what I'm doing. All right, so let's go to point two. I have called it secret joy. Proverbs 14.10. Each heart knows its own bitterness, and no one else can share its joy. Joy happens in the secret place. It's something that you have that it's, it's very intimate. You and God have it, and it's deep in your heart. And even though others can see it, the most you can do, it's like an advertisement that this is available. you got to go to the source to get this thing. I can't give you what I've got, but I can tell you that it exists. And I could tell you that, that there's a place that this comes from. The nature of joy and what joy is, is completely unattached to circumstances. Proverbs, here's what Proverbs 15, 15 says. This is like a life verse for me. It says, every day for the oppressed is wretched. But the cheerful heart has a continual feast. Did you, did you notice in this text that it has absolutely nothing to do with circumstances? It doesn't matter whether the oppressed have plenty of money and their kids are doing good and they're going on vacation and that they own three homes. Every day for the oppressed is bad. And it's the same with those that have discovered this inner feast, the continual feast. It's this secret place of joy. This is what God has for you. He has a secret that he wants to reveal to you in your heart called his joy. Matthew 13, 44, it's one of my life verses. It's actually one of the verses that the city church whole mission statement. Here's the city church mission statement in case you don't know what it is. And I'm not going to ask who knows what it is because that would be embarrassing because it's right on the bulletin. But most people probably would not even be able to say, well, I don't have, do we have a mission statement? Here it is. Here it is. Let me save you the embarrassment. Finding joy in Jesus Christ and sharing it. That's the entire purpose of this church. We want you to find joy. Now, let's talk about find. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. That when a man finds that treasure for joy, he sells everything else that he might obtain that field and own that treasure. The kingdom of God is a treasure hidden in a field. I'm going to submit to you that the, ch the church is the field. People come to church. 
They get around church. They go to Sunday school. They go to classes. They come to leadership seminars. And, and that's the church and the church meeting together and the church doing things and the church having programs and there's a want on. There's church, 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 church. Well, there is this secret treasure that God has put in the church. I was uh, in Montevideo years ago now. Uh, I was pastoring their uh, community Bible church, and it was the next day was Easter Sunday. I don't remember what year it was, somewhere between 1996 and 2005. And it's the night before Easter, Saturday night, and I have this dream. And in this dream, there's three scenes to the dream. Scene one, I am in a classroom. It's like a Sunday school classroom, and we're making crafts. And there are all of these crafts. They're just little simple children's crafts. But for some reason, I know that in one of these crafts is this jewel has been hidden inside of this craft. And I take that craft because I want to look at the jewel. I, I go into the bathroom. I get into the stall, and I'm just about to gaze at this jewel, and that's the end of scene one. Here's scene two. I had secured the jewel for myself, and somebody else wanted to carry it. They wanted to, they wanted to see what it felt like, and I let them use it, and I'm just... All I could think of the whole time they had it is that jewel is vulnerable. They have no idea what they have. And they, it, when you have a jewel, you carry it carefully. You ca- you, you, there needs to be carefulness. This could be stolen. This could be at risk. If you don't understand what you have, it could be at risk. And all I can think about in scene two is getting it back. Here's scene three. I'm standing outside. The jewel is now back in my pocket. And I'm outside of our house in Montevideo, and I see the house, and we got a couple cars there, and I, I'm like, I am like a multi-million, all of this could burn. The house could burn. Lord, in fact, let it burn. No. Um, um, I, the, the house, the cars, the, as long as I have this jewel, I am a multi-millionaire. I, there, and, I, and I wake up. And I wake up. Guys, there is something in the gospel. And it's, and it's hidden in the church. And don't miss it just because the church is kind of boring and it seems, seems like we do the same stuff. Listen, it's not about that. It's about what's hidden in the church. There is an intimacy with God in Christ Jesus. There is an inheritance in Christ Jesus that makes you infinitely wealthy. The answer to every problem in time and all eternity is in that gift, in that jewel. And that jewel, that, it is ours in Christ. It is ours for free in Christ. When you grasp what you have, and it's not, it's not automatic that people grasp it. I came to church. I didn't see any big deal. I, you know, I prayed the prayer. It didn't seem like it made. Listen, this is beyond outward. This is when it becomes real to you. Oh, my. Jesus is mine. I am his and he is mine. It really doesn't matter. Everything else grows strangely dim because if I have Jesus, I got everything I need for the rest of my life and for all eternity. This is why we pray all the time for revelation. Let the eyes of our hearts be opened. Let's talk about where this joy comes from. First, I want to talk about devotional life. Building your secret joy. This is all under secret joy. First, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. So if you want to read your Bible in the right lens, I always read before I pray in my devotions. 
it, it seems to me if you're going to sit down with a king, you're going to have him speak first. <laughs> if you've got an audience with a king, it, it, you don't start with you telling him what's on your mind. You say, what, is there something you'd like to say? I always read first. But here's the lens you read your Bible through. Joy. Jesus spoke these things so that I might have his joy and that his joy might be full in me. Listen, this is absolutely crucial to your quiet time. Intimacy does not come by having a quiet time. Intimacy is God's gift to you that you unwrap during your quiet time. I don't have to earn intimacy. As long as you're in the earn thing, as long as you're trying to be good enough, a good enough Christian to have intimacy with God, you're going to feel farther from God by your quiet time. It's a, it's a presumption to think that if you work hard enough, you can get close to God. No. Intimacy is a gift. God came to us. Jesus came and died on a cross so that we could have intimacy all for free. You've already got access. You open up that Bible and allow Jesus to speak to you. And then prayer. Until now, you've asked for nothing. Ask in my name. Ask on my merits. Don't ask on how, based on your day yesterday or how you feel today or the shame that you've been experiencing. Don't ask. With any, any of that's going to undermine any faith you have in prayer. Because if, if God's going to answer your prayer because you're good enough, then you're never going to have much faith that your prayers are going to be answered. Because there's always a question mark as to how good you actually are. Ask in my name. Ask because of my merits. Ask based on my purpose for you. Try to find out my purpose. That's why you read first. What is God's purpose for your life? Now, pray in my name. Pray in my name. Pray in my nature and for my glory and think of your life as you and me together. Now pray and watch because you're, go you're going to see your, you're going to be filled with joy. Not interesting not when the answer comes, but right now. You get to have joy right now before the answer comes because you know who's got it and the authority that he has, and he's going to work it. And if even if he doesn't do it exactly how you said, he'll do it better than that. Maybe he won't do it in the exact timing, but he, he's got a better timing than your timing because he's God. So I can have joy now because God has that now. God has that relationship now. Praise God, it's out of my hands. God has that financial need. God has that physical need. God has that despair. God has that fear. So I'm not carrying it around anymore. He has it. Why? So that he can fill me with joy now. So that I can go out into my day with strength. One of the most beautiful stories, and it's a prophetic story, is found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's the story of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. He, got, he was dropped by those that he was, were supposed to be taking care of him, and he became crippled in both feet. I think, of, I think of Mephibosheth as a type of the human race. He's crippled. He's broken. And David decides, I, he's made a covenant with Jonathan, and he says, I want to honor that covenant. Does, is, does Jonathan have any any descendants, and they, they find out about Mephibosheth, and he says, bring Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth is brought before him, and Mephibosheth, of course, he's a descendant of Saul. He deserves death, usually, from the, the next king, and so he's afraid for his life, and David says, the first thing he says to Mephibosheth, don't fear, don't fear. The reason why you're before me is because I want to show kindness to you. My heart is filled with kindness. I've made a covenant with your father. And I'm, I'm, I just want to show kindness to you. And so he does two things for him. First, he gives him all of the property of King Saul. In one moment, Mephibosheth becomes a multimillionaire. Just because the king said so. This is now yours. And then he does a second thing. He said, I'm giving you a place at my table as one of my sons. 
just like my sons. I'm giving you the same place at my dinner table that my sons have. God in Christ, because of a covenant that the Father made with the Son, He's been able to pour out His kindness on the human race. All we need to do, take fear away. God's intention for you is all good. God wants to do you good. Those that deserve death, He wants to do good to. And he has an inheritance for us that will last for all eternity. The Bible says in Ephesians 3, we, it's going to take eternity to even unpack the kindness that God has towards us, Christ Jesus. It will be revealed only in the ages to come, the full extent of this. It describes right now as like the down payment. Like, we can't see it now. It's just a very small part. We're going we're gonna to be unpacking what this is for in the ages. That's how big this gift is. Paul, Paul says it's an unspeakable undescribable gift. It's so big. And then he gives them a place. Jesus already has a place at the table, but he says, I'm going to give you a place just like my son. I'm giving you my son's place. Now is your place. There's a place at my table. Now, if you can picture a table with your setting at it, Did you notice there's nothing in there? There's nothing in what he says to Mephibosheth that says that Mephibosheth is going to be at every meal. There's just a place set for him. It's going to be up to Mephibosheth whether he takes meals there or not. He moves to Jerusalem so that he can be at the king's table for meals. We need to reorient our life around getting as close to this table as possible. And then we actually need to to take meals. There's a place at the table for you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, I will come in and we will sup together. The place at that table, it's not just where you eat. This is what God gets out of this. God God gets your intimacy. It feeds him. He doesn't need it. God doesn't need anything, but he desires it. Here's the cool thing. Whenever Mephibosheth pulled up to David's table, his crippledness was hidden. And that's all you could get at King David's table was having your crippledness hidden. But at King Jesus' table, it says this. It says that there's healing in his wings. That's Malachi 4.2. The son of righteousness will rise and there's healing in his wings. Wings, of course, is the picture of the mother hen, right? When the mother hen has the, the chicks in intimacy, the, the, the intimate place is under the wings, and, and you're protected in that place, but God's added something. You're healed in his wings. When you and I take our place at the table, we don't just start making our identity in fellowship with the king, but our brokenness, our crippledness starts to be healed. Those things in us that we don't know why we do what we do. We don't know. We, we can't understand how trauma has affected us. We can't understand how other people dropping us that crippled Mephibosheth. We've all been dropped in certain ways. And we're all broken in certain ways. And it's not apparent to us how we're broken. It is apparent to us that we are broken. Because we say things we shouldn't say. We do things we shouldn't do. We, we know there's something not working inside of us. <laughs> But we can't really put our finger on it, and we sense that it's deeper than the conscious realm. And what happens when we pull up to the table and we're just enjoying fellowship? He releases healing under the table to our brokenness. The joy of intimacy. And then the joy of God's presence. In your presence is fullness of joy. That's that's. Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. In 2013, I had a sabbatical for two months. April, May, Alice, and I went all over the place during the sabbatical. One of the places we went was Bethel in uh, California. 
and I had a pr- very profound experience there. The purpose of the sabbatical was I was I was burning out. I was being crushed under the weight of pastoring, and I didn't know I didn't know how to make it better. I didn't know, and I will actually tell another sabbatical why I went on sabbatical story later, but. Um, These pastors got up one at a time. The, the week it was on healing, and it was four leaders. There were like 450 leaders there, and all the different pastors at Bethel spoke at one time or another. And everyone said this phrase that deeply impacted me, and it was this. If you host God's presence, you don't have to be that good at your job because God's really good at his job. And that the, that the focus doesn't have to be me being good enough for my job, good enough at pastoring, good enough at taking care of people, that actually if I would change my focus and just make my main focus hosting his presence, that I would, I would be empowered to do my job way better than I could do my job because God would help me do my job and... Bill Johnson wrote this book called Hosting the Presence. And I read this book, and it was, it was very eye-opening. He said, a lot of the body of Christ is trying to get a breakthrough with God. A lot of churches are trying to get a breakthrough. He said, I got news for you. There's already been a breakthrough. It happened on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago. Jesus has already shed his blood and he's already opened heaven for you. There's an open heaven over every believer. Unless the enemy can get you to believe that that's not so. 2 Corinthians 3.15 It says when Moses is read a veil remains over their heart. Even though God sent Jesus, Jesus removed the veil that stood between us and God. He's removed that veil once for all. Even so, when Moses is read, a veil remains over their house. But when anybody turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. And here's what he said about it. When Moses is read, he said this is about performance religion. It doesn't matter whether it's Old Testament performance religion or new. Some people are living under New Testament law. It's still being good enough, and just, it's now the stakes are even higher. You've got to be even better. Heaven opens when you realize, oh, my. <laughs> Jesus has already torn the veil. There's an open heaven over me. Jesus has made a breakthrough. Here's, instead of trying to get a breakthrough, start by thanking God there's been a breakthrough. Thank God there's an open heaven over me. Thank you, God, that I can host your presence. Thank you that I was made to host your presence. This is why we've got the new nature. That's why he made a new wineskin. Why? So that it could hold the new wine. There's wine available for you. New wine. Of course, the, the Bible's picture of wine in the Old Testament was that which would bring joy to the heart. It was a picture of the Holy Spirit bringing joy. There, it's no wonder that his first miracle was changing water into wine. Abundant. It's what the New Testament is. In the last day, says, God, I'm going to pour out my spirit. You know what the line before that is? Peter says, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. <laughs> it looks like they are, but they're not. They got a new wine. They've got a new wine because God is pouring out his spirit. You and I daily can be filled with the Holy Spirit. God is generous. Okay, joy killers. Number one, the orphan spirit. Luke 1, 17 says about John the Baptist, he's going to come in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Why does the spirit of revival turn the hearts of the fathers to the children? 
it's very hard to grasp God's heart for us unless we see it in a human form. When our Father's hearts are turned toward us, it's, it's easy to get a hold of God's God being for us. And what I mean by a heart turns toward us is this, is that when your Father is for you and He corrects you, he re- you realize he's not correcting you for his sake so that he can't accept you until you have performed better. That's, that's, the, uh, that's a picture of somebody's heart that's not toward you. Their heart is just for themselves. But when their heart is for you, I love you. I'm for you. I accept you. I want to, I'm correcting you for your sake, not for my sake. And so God, God wants us to know that his heart is for us. And what happens is when you don't believe God's heart is for you, then any correction is interpreted as rejection. It says, Hebrews 12 says, don't, don't misunderstand. The Lord disciplines those he loves. It's a sign of his acceptance. He's not rejecting you because he's correcting you. He's correcting you for your sake, not for his sake. So what's happened in America right now is we live in a, a land of the orphan spirit. And so nobody can ever correct anybody because if you correct me, you're rejecting me. And so what God wants you to know is that his heart is for you. You don't have to do anything to be loved by him. He already loves you. His favor is already yours in Christ. When he brings a correction, it's not so that, it, you know, get with the program so I can accept you and fully love you. No, no, he's doing it for your sake. He wants you to experience more of what he has for you. He wants you to experience more of the calling that he wants to bring through you. He's disciplining you for your sake, not for his. His heart. Is completely for you. Here's what happens when you don't when you don't believe that. Then what happens is you seek that affirmation from people. And it's a disaster. Because the more you seek it, you need other people to affirm you, other people to accept you, other people to say that you're good enough, you're good enough, you're good enough. And what happens is you end up empowering insecurity. <laughs> and then you spend your whole life comparing with other people and are, are, am I as good as somebody else and da-da-da-da-da, and I have to find ways to affirm. And frankly, a lot of people in this world, they don't unconditionally love and accept you. <laughs> you have to be good enough or they won't. And, and you were good enough in that area, but, or they changed their standard. I mean, there's a thousand reasons. And so we got a whole bunch of people wounded and rejected, longing to be validated by somebody. And folks, the only place that validation can come from is God. He adopts us. He takes away the spirit of fear, spirit of slavery that leads to fear again. And he releases the spirit of adoption that causes us to cry, Abba, Father, I'm just his. Abba, I belong to you. Your thoughts define me. You are my reality. This, this is the foundation of joy. Paul prays for the Ephesians. You being rooted and grounded in love would now grow up to know the height, length, width, and love of God that God has for you in Christ Jesus so that you might experience the fullness of God. The key to the fullness of God is believing his love for you, believing how great it is, believing the favor that has already been poured out. No human being can give that to you. But, and of course, there's books, all kinds of books about this. When there hasn't been that human father, it's called the father wound, it's harder. It's just hard. doesn't mean you can't get it. It just means it's harder. The truth is, none of our fathers loved us the way they should have. <laughs> they could give us a little inkling, but what the father has for us is astonishing 
but you have to let him. Entitlement, joy killer number two. A few years ago, uh, we were at Gates of Glory. It was a Friday night, and I am just—I was just overwhelmed with grief because of my son being away from God. And um, I'm on my knee. I remember the moment very well. I'm on my knees, and I'm just crying out to God for His salvation. And I have this picture of the older brother. The older brother says that the reason why he's not coming into the party is because there's never been a party for him and his friends. The people that he wants in that party are not in the party, and therefore I'm not in the party. And he was angry. I was sad. Oftentimes entitlement takes on different forms with different personalities. Anger or grief will keep you out of the party. Excessive grief will keep you out of God's party. The Lord just tapped on my shoulder and said, Tom, are you going to stay out of the party because Matt's not in the party? And then he made it clear, probably the greatest thing you can do for Matt is be in the party yourself. You have to give yourself permission to have joy, even though other people are making bad choices. Other people aren't experiencing and not doing it, and people you love and people, how could I ever have joy if they don't have joy? Well, you can. They've got their own life and their own decisions. And maybe it's your joy that's going to eventually lead to their joy. And maybe it's a little creepy when they say, you can't have joy because I'm not making good choices, really? Guys, you're not their savior, and you're not their judge. Get into the party. Get into the party. There is a party that heaven is throwing. It is a celebration of his grace. It is a celebration that that which is dead is now alive again. That which is lost has been found. We have to kill the fattened calf. We have to celebrate. Number three, joy killer, too busy. I'm kind of a Lord of the Rings geek. So God sometimes uses the Lord of the Rings. It's 2012. We, have, we had put the churches together in 2010. We had put the schools together in 2011. If you can imagine all the trauma around that. The school at that time had a lawsuit against it, and I'm the leader of this thing, and it, 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 I'm just carrying a lot. It's, it's 2012. It's the middle of summer. We're on vacation. We're at, we're at Brian and Leslie White's in Michigan. I wake up in the morning. And before I can have a thought of my own, I have this phrase come to me. It's from, it's from the Lord of the Rings. You are like too little butter spread over too much bread. That was the phrase. And I just, I knew, I knew it was true. There wasn't enough of me to go around. And of course, what that was the reason why Bilbo was leaving and going and retreating. And I get back from this vacation, and Joel says, Joel Alberti, he's one of my Barnabases, he says, I have gone to the elder board. You're going to take a sabbatical. They have already approved this. Why was it so hard for me to take a sabbatical? Because I'll tell you what, folks, it takes faith to rest. It takes faith to rest. Because isn't everything going to fall around, uh, fall apart if you're not there to hold everything up and everybody up? It's funny. We started sabbaticals after I did my sabbatical because it was so helpful. We did two-month sabbaticals every seven years. Every staff member does. All, so all of our staffs had their, their first round, I think. Maybe there's one more. Andrew is left. But they've all come back and they've said the same thing. That at some point, in some way, God during this thing says something like this. I don't need you. Church doesn't need you. The ministry doesn't need you. You're not there because you're needed. You're there because I've called you there. 
And I want you to reapproach this thing as a privilege instead of, I am holding all of this up. It's, a complete, it's just a different approach. And then lastly, joy killers. Unmet expectations. This happens to everybody. When John the Baptist was in prison, Jesus, he, he sent his disciples and said, ask Jesus, is he really the one or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus sent back and said, oh, I'm the one. And then he said, blessed is he who's not offended by me. I don't care who you are. We all have expectations of how our life should go, and sometimes life doesn't work out the way we, we saw it. And when we do, it's a crisis. When Elijah was in that cave, as Jason talked about this morning, he had a certain expectation of what was going to happen when that rain came and when the fire fell and that there was going to be this massive revival. And he comes and he says to God, I'm the only I'm the only one left, and just take me. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Kill me. I'm done. A lot of times when God doesn't do it the way we thought he was going to do it, we think he's not working. Because he didn't, if he was working, he would, do, he would take our advice. You know what prayer, our prayers usually are? is advice to God. <laughs> Strong suggestions of how he should run his kingdom. And here's what God says to Elijah, and I just love this, because Elijah has said twice, I'm the only one left, and here's what God says to him. Hey, buddy, I love you, but I want you to know something. I'm doing 7,000 times more than you think I'm doing. Whatever you think God's doing for your children, for you, just remember this. He, you need to add 7,000 times whatever you thought he was doing. God is running his kingdom. But the burden that he's asked mankind to carry is to serve him, to love him, and to enjoy him without knowing how this thing all works out. I want to, and I, I'm going to close with this scripture. This is Ecclesiastes 3. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He also has set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. The burden that human beings have is that you get one piece of the puzzle that you're given every single day without being able to see the, the box. You don't get to see the box. You don't get to see what, what are we making? Where is this going? He's put eternity in our hearts, so we know he's making something. But we can't understand piece by piece. And this is what has depressed Solomon. He is, he's decided that life is futile, that everything is in vain. And in, in Ecclesiastes 3, he tells us the answer he came to. This is, it is a burden that you don't know what the big picture is. You don't know everything God is doing. And that burden can make you an atheist, can make you a, an agnostic, or can make you an offended Christian. Here, here's, where, here's where atheists and agnostics come from. How can, they, how can you look outside and not believe in God? Here's how. An all-wise, all-loving, all-powerful God would never make the world we're living in. Boom. Therefore, he doesn't exist. It's a, it's a judgment on God. Because I can't understand this world, then I, I can't believe in God because God has to fit into my plan. And if this isn't how it is, if th then this, there can't be a God because I have decided what God should be. Guys, God's bigger than us. God doesn't fit in our little puny little brain. 
There is a God. So I was reading the commentary in the, in the ESV, and here's what it said with this verse. I just loved this. Rather than becoming embittered by what God has not granted, namely the ability to comprehend all of reality, one should enjoy the gifts God has given. We can all drink every single day of joy in the food we eat, in the, in the drinks that we drink, in the walking outside, in the simple pleasures. Don't play God. He says to Elijah, leave this cave and go out and anoint people. Go, stop overthinking this thing. Go out and do what I've called you to do. Could we stand together? I want to pray for you. And then Joel is actually going to come and give one final. Joel, you can start. Come on up, up here. I know it takes Joel a while to get up here because he's got a limp up here. All right, here we go. Would you just mind opening your hands right now to the Lord? Lord, you're so amazing. You're so good. And you haven't forgot me. Maybe it seems like everybody else has joy, but I don't. The Lord's saying this, I haven't forgotten you. I want you to develop secret joy. Lord, I don't know how. I'll show you how. Lord, I break off that orphan spirit in Jesus' name that says, I have to be different before God will love me and favor me. Stop it. His heart is for you right now. He could never be more for you than he is right now. He died for you while you were still sinners to show you I am for you. When God corrects me, he's correcting me for my sake, not so that he can accept me fully. So, Lord, I break that orphan spirit. Father, for those who... Joy is a remembrance. Joy is something I had maybe when I first got saved or when I had that really good season. And, and you actually encourage us. Remember that. <laughs> remember. Remember that. Just repent. Your Christianity has become something other than that. Repent of that. It's okay. Just repent. Because I'm here today to restore your joy. I want the joy of the Lord to be restored. Lord, I pray you take out every have to and replace it with a want to by your mighty, mighty grace. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.